Good morning. Taylor stole my thunder there on explaining what Crosstalk is, but it is so good to be with you guys this morning. Again, my name is J.D. Wilhelm. I do have the honor and the privilege of serving as the Crosstalk pastor here at Cypress Creek Church. And I say that it's an honor and a privilege, and it really is a dream come true for me to be able to serve in this role. And uh, just a little backstory for you guys. In the fall of 2017, I was working for an outdoor adventure camp called Camp Eagle, which is a partner organization here of Cypress Creek Church. Our students go there every summer. And so in the fall of 2017, I was going on the, roo- on the road with a team of people. And basically, what we have to do is fill about 150 to 160 summer staff positions in order for us to make summer happen for churches like Cypress Creek Church. So the way that happens is we go from campus to campus all throughout Texas and the surrounding states, and we go and ask college students to come serve with us for the summer, whether that is being a summer camp counselor, whether that's being in the kitchens or working on a rope staff or being a backpacking guide, maybe even a paddling guide, things of that nature. And so it was in the fall of 2017 that I came to Crosstalk for the very first time. We'd shown up, we were friends with uh, Paulina and the crew at Crosstalk, and so we're hanging out, talking to college students. And so I sit through my very first Crosstalk gathering. I believe it was in Centennial at the time. And as I'm sitting there in Centennial, it gets to the last song of worship, and I turn to my boss, who is sitting next to me, and I say to him, no joke, I say to him, someday I want that job. Someday I want that job. And I wouldn't recommend saying that to the person who currently employs you about another job opportunity, but it's what I said. And so October 1st of 2020, I got to fulfill that dream. And now I do have the honor and the privilege of serving as the Crosstalk Pastor here at Cypress Creek Church. And we could go into a lot of detail about that story, but it is truly God who has moved in and through both Cypress Creek, but also in my wife, Taylor, and my life to get us here to this point. And it all sounds like this very romantic view of life, and you might think, well, if that's the story of how you got here, then nothing must ever go wrong in your life. It must be perfect. And that cannot be farther from the truth. I have to admit to you guys that my wife Taylor and I, we've had a really crummy two weeks. We've had a really crummy last two weeks. And I don't say that because I want pity or you guys to feel bad for me. It's just the reality. And we all have a couple of weeks like that every once in a while where you're like, I just didn't have fun. For about the last month, I haven't had a lot of fun. And so over the past two weeks, we have had car stuff, we have had health stuff, and we've had house stuff all conveniently happen at the exact same time. Lovely. It's just so much fun. And I think that in in all of that, in all of that, that's really the trifecta that makes up a really bad week. One of those elements is generally not fun, but it's manageable in life, Two of them begins to create some stress in your relationships and in your house, and all three of them really are the perfect confluence that make up human misery in a lot of different ways. Now, those of you guys who have had the joy of parenting or are parents right now, you guys are saying, but wait, there is a fourth element to this entire equation. And you just wait, J.D., in five years when you have kids and your kid is sick, you have health stuff, you have your own health stuff, and you have car stuff, you will know what human misery feels like in that given moment. 
And so I have to confess that right around Tuesday morning, of course, we have a car in the shop. I'm still trying to figure out how to get somebody to fix something in my house. My wife is driving me to a coffee shop to just drop me off. And I'm going to take my first couple of meetings in this coffee shop on Tuesday morning. And so I get in and I'm feeling really, really productive. It's like 7 a.m. at this point. I got a couple hours to come in and, I, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get really organized. I'm going to be super productive. It's going to be a great start to the day. And what happened is I got into my booth, I got my coffee, and I just began to throw a pity party for myself. I just decided to have a good old-fashioned pity party because I was thinking, woe is me, I don't deserve this, this shouldn't be happening to me. Quite frankly, I did pull out the pastor card with God. God, I have given my life to vocational ministry, and this is what's gonna happen in my life? It's not fair. Life is not fair, is what I was thinking. Now, here is the thing about fairness. We all have a different fairness quotient. And we walk around throughout our lives carrying with us our fairness quotient, which is basically what we, deserve, we feel like we deserve and how we feel like we should be treated. And we have this definition of what fair looks like and what fair really is in our life. And now when a relationship or when a person or a situation happens in life that does not meet our expectation of fairness, we have this tendency to get upset. We end up in the place where I was, where I'm throwing a pity party saying, woe is me, life is unfair. Now, ultimately, this happens because we want life and we want other people to play by our implicit unspoken rules. We want people to be able to read our minds so that they treat us the way that we feel is the most fair. And we just get mad when they can't read our minds. How dare they? This isn't what I deserve. And so I'm sitting there on Tuesday morning having my pity party, and as I start my work day, I open up my prayer list. And I see a name on that prayer list. And the name on that prayer list was a friend of mine who he and his family are going through a really, really difficult time right now. A vastly difficult time, something that I can hardly imagine going through. And quite frankly, nobody deserves to go through what he and his family are currently walking through. Nobody deserves to go through that. And here I was throwing myself a pity party about my stuff. Woe is me, life is unfair, and all of those moments. And I was reminded in that given moment that my stuff is minuscule compared to some of the things that other people are going through. And it's in that space that I think that my petty little problems aren't fair, but gosh, if I'm judging by that standard, his life is far more unfair than mine is. And I think that the coolest part about what he and his family are going through right now is that they aren't focused on fairness. In the midst of all of their suffering, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of uncertainty and anguish, they're not focused on fairness. And what they're doing is they're using their situation as an opportunity in the midst of human suffering to minister to other people. And as I was pondering all of this, the really fun part about this friend is that he and I have been friends since the first grade. Since the first grade, we're working on about a 23, 24-year-old, 
24-year-old relationship at this point in time. And throughout this past week, as I've prayed for him and his family, I've reminisced on our childhood together. I've thought a lot about the memories that we shared growing up playing soccer together. I remember when his siblings got married. I remember when his grandparents passed away. I remember when I was in his wedding and his parents served as kind of the second set of parents for me, raising me up, feeding me, teaching me when I was making a mess of their house. And it it was magnificent. And when you're a child, you play all sorts of games all sorts of games growing up. And some of those games are established games that have a clear set of rules. You play kick the can, you play capture the flag on Friday night, you play sardines, hide and go seek, tag, all of these things that you grow up playing on the playground in school. Now, then you have on the other side, all of these organized sports, baseball, basketball, football, soccer. Now, all of these things have a preset list of rules that are there to ensure the fairness of the game. They're there primarily to ensure that everybody has an equal shot of winning. And then just as likely is that you are also making up games as you go as a kid. I know we were in our childhood, and when you're creating your own games, the beautiful part is that you get to create your own rules, which is awesome when you're the person making up the rules to the game, right? Because you get to create the rules to suit you. You get to create the rules in a way that you have an unfair advantage over all of your other friends. Or at least I did, very much so when I was a kid. And so the rules were never fair because I didn't want them to be fair. I wanted to put them in a position that they uniquely suited myself. And I remember my buddy Nathan was one of the ones who came up most often with the games that we played. He was by far the most creative. And now... He would come up with these ridiculous rules on the fly as we were playing the game if it looked like he was beginning to lose. But because he was the guy who was creating the game, then we had to play by his rules. And somehow he could get away with doing this with basketball or football or soccer, things that you would assume have a set set of rules to ensure the fairness of all of this. And so I remember as a kid, I used to get so mad I just used to get so upset because it just wasn't fair. It wasn't fair that he got to create the rules and I had to play by his rules. And for some reason, they never benefited me. And I'm sure that y'all have similar sorts of stories from when you guys were kids growing up. And the thing is, those don't stop as you get older. We just get much, much sneakier about how we create those rules. And so if we're going to kind of track life all the way through from our childhood to our adulthood, you go to middle school and you go to high school, and there are oftentimes these sets of unwritten rules or expectations that determine whether you are a part of somebody's friend group or whether you make the team. Mean Girls, the movie, is like the perfect example of this sort of behavior, right? And then you get to college and everybody tells you, oh, just wait until college, it's so much better. Well, the thing is, it doesn't stop happening in college. You still have to dress a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. You have to think a certain thing. You have to listen to the right band in order to belong to whatever group it is. And then, if we're perfectly honest, we can't stop there because it happens in our adulthood as well. It happens in our workplaces, in our professions, it happens in our friend groups, in our social circles. But the most insidious place that this happens 
is here in our church. The most insidious place that this happens is here in our church. Because here in the church, we have these expectations of people. Sometimes there are spoken expectations of what it means to belong to a church. More often than not, there is a set of unspoken expectations that you need to meet in order to belong to the body. And what these things do, all of these uh, spoken and unspoken expectations then serve as the gatekeepers to what it means to belong to the given community. We place these burdens on people so that they have to meet them in order to belong in this place. Now, this is how it generally plays out. Tyler gets up here and he tells you after worship is done that you should go greet your neighbor. Go greet your neighbor, go meet somebody new. And so you go and you meet a family that you've never met before. You meet the husband, you meet the wife, you meet the kids, you get all their names, you know what grade they're in, you, you figure out what the husband does as a profession, what the wife does as a profession, and you kind of get into how did they hear about Cypress Creek Church, and then some guy like me gets up on stage, and so you go back to your seat. You sit through all of this, you worship at the end, you go home, and you get in your car to go home, or maybe you're going to lunch afterwards, and you get in the car, and the conversation goes something like this. It was really great to meet the Smiths. Yeah, the Smiths seem really, really great. Well, what did you think of them, really? Well, they're great, but I just don't know if they're gonna fit in here, right? I just don't know if they're gonna fit in here. And now when we make a statement of that sort, this is the perfect example of our spoken and our unspoken expectations of people then determining who is in and who is out from the community of faith. Now, this is not a, just a Cypress Creek church problem. It's not just an American church problem. This has been going on since the inception of the church. And so what I want to do today is we're gonna take a look at one of those instances, and we're gonna see what we can learn from it in our context here in the 21st century. And so if you guys have a Bible with you and you guys wanna open up to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we're gonna start in verse one, and it's also gonna be on the screen behind me. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done for them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of God and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, 
Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Verse 12 says, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, saying, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with these word, this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This story tells us that there are these men who come down from Judea and they proclaim that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And their protest concerns the conversion of these uncircumcised Gentiles and the question about whether circumcision is necessary for their salvation. And the reason for their protest is this long-standing Jewish tradition that the act of circumcision for men is central to their identity as the covenant people of God. In other words, circumcision is the necessary sign in order to claim that identity as the people of God. And we could go deep into the weeds on explaining the significance of circumcision, but here is the short version. Circumcision was expected of every Jew and every person who converted to Judaism who expected to share in Israel's blessings according to the promise that God made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. And what Paul and Barnabas argue is that this rite of initiation, circumcision, has been reduced to a symbolic exercise rather than a physical one, meaning that salvation is a matter of the heart rather than a matter of the flesh. So after their argument with these men, they're sent to Jerusalem to take the issue before the Jerusalem church. And it tells us that all along the way, they were sharing the good news of what God had done through them among the Gentiles, and it encourages all the believers who hear this. And the church in Jerusalem welcomes them with open arms. Now, underneath all of this activity lies this sense of urgency, because Paul and Barnabas and those who were sent really desire an answer to this question. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved? Do Gentiles have to be circumcised to follow Jesus. And the sense of urgency that pervades this meeting is not whether traditional Jews accept Paul's calling to the nations, nor even whether the purity and practices of these uncircumcised Gentiles will undermine the church's social solidarity or its Jewish legacy. Rather, the implied threat lies with the stubbornness of certain Jewish believers whose protests of Paul's mission threatened their membership within the restored people 
of God. Meaning if circumcision is no longer necessary, then they have lost what makes them special or unique in essence. They've lost this unique identity as the covenant people of God, and that is not fair in their minds. Because if I have to do something, then everybody else should have to do it too. For example, if we're working in our office on a Friday afternoon and we know that we have a project due on Monday morning at 9 a.m., your boss comes in and he says, hey, this isn't gonna get done on a Friday. I'm really gonna need you to come in on Saturday morning to ensure that this is ready to go on Monday morning. You say, sure, I can make it happen. And so you come in on Saturday morning, ready to knock this out, to go home, to spend time with your family, and then you realize that you are the only person on the team who has been asked to come in on Saturday. So no longer are you just thinking, I'm gonna bust this out, I'm gonna get home, I'm gonna go spend time with my family, but you are now just sitting there frustrated and fuming, typing away at your keyboard, thinking this is entirely unfair. If I have to come in and work on my Saturday, then everybody else should have to come in with me. They should all have to experience what I have had to experience. And so that is exactly what these people are thinking in this instance. And so it says that the floor is given to some Pharisees who are apparently part of the Jerusalem church at this point. And the Pharisees are concerned that believers live within these carefully prescribed social and theological boundaries, primarily as it relates to issues of purity. They are concerned with following to a T the rules of the Mosaic law. And the reason for this, their motivation behind this is that they know very well the consequences for Israel's disobedience, and they want desperately to remain in God's blessing. And their earnest commitment in relating biblical teaching to the real-life practices of religion reflects this larger commitment to the community's purity before a holy God and within a sinful and broken world, meaning that their heart is for the church to stand out against the world as this picture of purity, which, don't hear me say that this is a bad thing. It's actually a good desire. The people of God and the church should stand out against the world as different. When the Holy Spirit moves and works in our lives, it transforms us more and more into the image of God, and that leads us to live a life that is different than that of the world. So it says that after the Pharisees say their piece, Peter gets up to speak, and he recounts the importance of his experience with Cornelius. And for those of you guys who maybe don't remember this story or have never heard this story before, here's the shortest version I can give you. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a soldier. And the scriptures tell us that he was a really devout man, that he gave his money to the poor, that he, his prayers were honoring to God. So Cornelius has this vision where an angel of the Lord comes to him and and it says to him to send for Simon Peter. For Simon Peter is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. And so after this vision, he gathers these three men and he says, go, go to Joppa, go find this Simon Peter and bring him to me. Now at the same time, Peter is in Joppa and he's on the roof of the house. And it says that he too has a vision. Now in this vision, 
this is the J.D. Wilhelm paraphrase here, is there's a large picnic blanket that comes down out of heaven. And on top of this picnic blanket, it says that there are animals and reptiles and birds of all kinds. And the reptiles kind of weird me out, if I'm being honest. Because what happens immediately after this is that it says that a voice says to him, eat the picnic. This is here for you. Take and eat. And Peter says, no. No, I'm not going to eat. I am a good and devout Jew, and all of this food is ceremonially unclean. It's against the law for me to eat this food. And it says that the scene happens three times to Peter. And then it's all lifted back up into heaven and he's left there to ponder his vision. And as he's thinking about what the vision could possibly mean, there come Cornelius's men banging at the door. And they tell Peter of what Cornelius had experienced in his vision and they ask him to come with them to go to Cornelius's house. And so he goes to Cornelius' house, and when he opens the door, Cornelius is there, and of course, he's invited all of his family, and he's invited all of his friends, and they're here, and what Peter does is he preaches the word of God to them, and it says that every person in that house came to know the truth of the gospel, that they believed, that they received the Holy Spirit, and then they were all baptized. Now, one New Testament scholar that I was reading about this moment refers to it as the Gentile Pentecost. The Gentile Pentecost. This is the first moment in the book of Acts where Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. And I think that this is a really helpful way of us, for us to understand the significance of this moment. Because it's in this moment that God demonstrates his choosing of the Gentiles to receive salvation. So Peter's basic point is this. God's will is publicly disclosed in the conversion of Cornelius. End of debate. He says that it is ultimately God's choice to bring the mission to the uncircumcised Gentiles. Therefore, no one has a right to disagree. And what he does is he points to their reception of the Holy Spirit as proof that God has included the Gentiles in his salvific mission in the world. Following his speech, Peter asks a question of all those who are there. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, the implication of this question is that they have never been able to live up to the standard of the Mosaic law. No one has been able to live up to the standard. So he asked the question, why are we trying to put this burden on somebody else if we first can't bear the weight of it? Peter goes on to say, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The disciples' identity, whether Jew or Greek, is not determined by their ability to follow the Mosaic law. Rather, it's evidenced by a new life in the Spirit that circumcises the believer's heart and transforms their lives from the inside out. All of the people fall silent then as Paul and Barnabas get up and they relate all of the signs and wonders that God has done through them amongst the Gentiles. 
Following that, James gets up and he has this to say. His main point is basically that the scriptures have always pointed towards God's mission to the Gentile people. The scriptures point to it. Therefore, it is not their place to burden them with circumcision or these works of the law. Rather, encourage them, it says, to stay away from idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, to avoid eating food either with blood or that had been strangled. All of these things are religious practices that took place in the pagan temple feasts. And so in essence, what James is doing here is he's saying, rather than burden them with the works of the law, encourage them with what it means to follow God in the midst of this culture and in this time. What it means to live a life as a countercultural follower of Jesus and to turn away from the way of this world. Let me create a hypothetical situation for you. I want you guys to picture the classic movie version of heaven for me. Whatever that looks like in your mind. Now, I wanna be 100% clear that I'm not making any theological statements as to the nature of heaven, so I want this to be as ridiculous as possible. I'm talking big pearly gates, perched high up on big fluffy white clouds, and the angels are there, and they're these chubby little babies with the diaper falling off of them, and they got the tiny little wings that are going a million miles a minute. The whole nine, are you guys with me? And it's in that moment that you, at the end of your life, walk up to God, who, of course, has a big white beard down to his belly button. He's in the long robes. For some reason, every time I picture this, it's always animated in my life. You walk up to God, and he has one question for you, standing in front of the pearly gates. He's got one question for you. And his question is this. Why should I let you in? Take a minute. Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. Why should God let you in? Now, when I was 19 years old, I was sitting in Tommy's Pizza on Lane Avenue, a half a block off of the Ohio State campus. And that's the first time this question was asked of me. And thank the Lord for the guy who discipled me in college who put up with my answers because he hung with me throughout the entire process. But I believe that my answer to this question goes something like this. Well, because I am doing my best to live a life that glorifies God and I do my best to tell people about Jesus. I felt really good about my answer. It's like I solved the Sunday school riddle. Because I do my best to live a life that glorifies God, and I do my best to tell people about Jesus. And the key thing for us in that sentence is because I. Because I. Now, there is an almost endless list of things that we can put after because I. Because I don't lie, because I don't cheat, because I don't steal, because I don't gossip, because most of all, I'm better than that person over there. And any sentence that begins with because I is a dramatic misunderstanding of the gospel. Any sentence that begins with because I is a dramatic misunderstanding of the gospel because the implication of that sentence is that what saves you 
is Jesus plus something that I am bringing to the table, something that I can offer that is worthy. And the only thing that should follow because is Jesus. Because Jesus, period, end of story. Because Jesus paid the price, that is the only reason that I am offered salvation. People want to add all sorts of stuff to it. But just as the reformers cried more than 500 years ago, Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. And the question that's brought to the forefront by our hypothetical thought experiment is this. Are we focused on the external things or are we focused on the internal things? Are we focused on the external things or the internal things? Those who, men who came down from Judea and the Pharisees in Jerusalem were highly concerned with these external things. They're concerned with these acts of ritualistic purity. So of course you had to be circumcised to be a part of the people of God. It was an external symbol. It was a sign. In other words, they wanted everybody in the church to be pure. You had to act right, you had to dress right, you had to speak right. Maybe some of you guys grew up in a home or a church that was like this. It's incredibly relatable. And these expectations function as the gatekeepers to the community. They determine who is in and who is out. It asks the question, do you meet our qualifications for membership? And we could talk about judgment forever, but ultimately we have this desire to reserve our right to judge other people. We want to reserve our right to pronounce judgment upon another person. We want to be the people who create the boundary lines that determine whether you are in or whether you're out, whether you meet the cut or you don't. And what Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and James argue is that God is concerned with the internal things, not the external. You see, Christ has paid for our sins by his death on the cross. Christ alone is sufficient for the problems of this world. Christ alone is our way to salvation, and there's nothing that needs to be added to Christ's atoning work for salvation. Because Jesus, because Jesus, Christ alone plus nothing else. It is Christ alone that is the center of our faith and his work is sufficient. Therefore, our identity as followers of Jesus is not determined by our ability to follow the Mosaic law or to meet somebody else's or our own expectations. Rather, it is evidenced by a new life in the spirit that circumcises our heart and enables us to live life in a transformed manner. And so what I wanna do for a second is I want us to take a communal deep breath. I'm very serious about this. We're all gonna take a deep breath together. We're gonna go in through your nose, out through your mouth. You guys ready? One, two, three. Isn't that relaxing? The pressure is off. The pressure is off. 
We no longer have to put all of this pressure on ourselves to be good enough. We can stop our feeble attempts at trying to be good enough, to be pure enough, or to earn our way into God's good graces. You belong because of Christ's atoning work on the cross alone. And his work includes even you, just as you are with all of your mess and all of your baggage. And if you're here this morning and you have never said yes to Jesus, I hope that is the only thing that you hear this morning, that you belong. You belong in the family of God. We are saved through the grace of Jesus Christ, not by our works. It is a gift freely offered. It may well be the only truly unconditional gift in this life. It comes without conditions or limits. You don't have to be good enough or do good enough to get to that point. His love includes even you just as you are. And if you're here today and you already know Jesus, my message for you is a little bit different. Stop it. Stop it. Stop placing burdens first and foremost on yourself. Judging whether you are measuring up or not or and beating yourself up for not living up to this unrealistic standard that somebody else or you have set for yourself. Stop it. And then stop judging other people. Stop creating barriers and burdens that keep people from coming to know the love of Jesus Christ. Let us instead be a people who are focused on the internal things. Love God, love others. And the implications of that, as James reminds us, is that we are encouraging people with what it means to follow God in the midst of this culture and in this time. God does not need us to police other people. Because the only thing that I know for certain in this week has reinforced it for me is that my definition of fair and my definition of just is always going to be lacking. God is the only person who is ultimately fair, who is ultimately just. So stop it. Stop doing it to yourself and then stop doing it to other people. Instead, let's be a people who throw ourselves fully on the grace of Jesus Christ, trusting that his atoning work on the cross is sufficient because Jesus, he alone is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and he offers us the free gift of eternal life. So let's live in that freedom as opposed to putting the pressure and the burdens on ourselves and on other people. Amen? Let me pray.